we're going to continue our series on preparing for Christ. <clears throat> Today we're going to concentrate on Joseph. Joseph is one of the central characters, the Joseph of Mary and Joseph, who was the, if you will, fa surrogate father of Christ. So turn with me over to the book of Matthew. Book of Matthew. We're going to look at verses 18 through 25. And the title of the sermon is The Altered Dreams of Joseph. And no, I can spell. <clears throat> but I'm not speaking of the A-L-T-E-R-E-D, although we have to always A-L-T-E-R-E-D our lives. Our lives need to be altered regularly. But I'm speaking of the need for us to A-L-T-A-R our lives, to alter our lives, and to take the dreams that we have about our own lives and to place them on the altar of God. And Joseph had to place his dreams on God's altar. And it was tough on him. But the benefit was more than worth it. Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, verse 20, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. And she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place, verse 22, to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. Verse 24, and Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Lord, help us as we study. Joseph's an amazing man. Mary gets a whole lot of publicity, and rightfully so. The Protestant church has, for the last couple of decades, been refining Mary's unusual and extraordinary commitment. For centuries, it didn't want to identify with Mary too much because another part of the church had over-amplified her significance and almost brought it to the place of deification. And so the Protestant church tried to distance itself from Mary, but really to its own detriment because there's a way that we need to honor people without over-honoring them. And Mary was amazing. This 16-year-old, finest youth group leader, a youth pastor could find. looked in the face of reputation destruction and said, so what? Think if she had been born today. If she was 16-year-old, what would Facebook do to her? What would Twitter do to her? She'd have to take down all of her pictures because she wouldn't want anybody to know what she looked like when she went to the mall. 
she would, she would be destroyed. You talk about bullying. Destroyed by Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TMZ. Everybody would have got hold of this story. Trying to prove this girl was out of her mind. The parents would be pulled up on all kinds, Geraldo and, 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 and Oprah and you name the talk show. They would have been on it. How, how did this happen? Did she tell you this too? And she looked at all of that within a conversational moment. We're not talking about six months to pray. Within a conversational moment. That I'm sure after the angel of the Lord, when she asked, how in the world am I going to do this? I'm a virgin. People don't get, don't get pregnant who are virgins. He said, the Holy Spirit's going to overshadow you. The power of the Most High will come upon you, and you will bear the holy offspring of God. And I'm sure that there was a little space, silence, between what the angel of the Lord said to Mary and Mary's response. But the response shows that she had a really quick processor in her brain. That somehow this girl was able to run through all of the possible scenarios. What am I going to tell my mom and dad? What am I going to tell my fiance? What am I going to tell my friends? What am I going to tell my pastor? What am I going to tell my church? How is this going to look? Oh no, everybody's going to think. Be it done unto me according to your, to your word. Behold the bond slave of the Lord. Amazing. The 16-year-old puts our adult commitment to shame. And although she needs to be lauded for what she did. Joseph was equally amazing. Joseph is betrothed to this woman. And a betrothal was just as serious as a marriage. In fact, it was contractually binding. It wasn't like an engagement that we have today. And it was contractually binding because the parents would put folk together. You you didn't have a, a man and a woman just deciding they wanted to be married. And I know this... This sounds anathema in our freedom culture. The desires for us to be independent to make our own decisions. I got that. But remember, most of the world still does it like this. My pastor friend, Harry Gomes, who comes here to minister every year, he just did his daughter like this. That's how she's getting married. India has one billion people, and that's how everybody functions there. Parents hook them up. You say, well, I think it's better to date. Well, how is that working out for us, by the way, in Western society? How is that working out for us? I'm not saying one's better than the other, but don't doubt one. Don't degrade it simply because you think it's controlling. It's the way society's worked. But it required that a bride price be given by the man who was intended to marry the woman, and that money given to the father of the bride. And that money was fairly significant. It was a contract between the two. You would give the money, and then probably a year later, a wedding would be planned. And this wedding would would be a week long. There were so many preparations. When I say the wedding was a week long, the wedding would be a day, but the reception would be a week long. And so you had to send out people all throughout the territory of Israel, and sometimes to foreign territories, to find all the people who were related to the family that would want to to participate. And so you needed that entire year for people to plan, because they had to take vacation, an entire week just to get there. It's a big, big deal, big deal. And the money was the seal to the deal. And if a woman had considerable standing, it would cost you more. If she was all that, more. And I imagine that there were a number of families that were trying to get Mary's dad's ear. Dad's saying, she's amazing. Listen, we can work something out. 
Oh, really? Well, he's already told me he'll give me this much. What you going to give? Oh, the price went up because Mary was amazing. This was the best girl in all of Nazareth, y'all. And so I'm sure Joseph had to really get in the running here with his father, and they're working the thing out. And, and, and it, it could cost a, a brother a pretty penny. If we, if we can get a, a clue from Jacob's life, maybe we can understand a little bit about, about the price. Jacob in the Old Testament was the brother of Esau and the son of Isaac and Rebekah. Esau was the elder brother, though they were twins. Esau came out of the womb first. Jacob had, had defrauded his brother out of both the birthright and the blessing. The birthright was the positional standing that the firstborn had and would receive a double portion of the father's inheritance, one portion to be given to all the children, another portion to care for the father and mother as they aged. So he would receive a double portion. And then the blessing was that sense that the father had of what the child was to do and how they were to attend the rest of their life with the father's words of encouragement and prophecy over them. It was an, an enormous thing. Well, Jacob had taken the birthright because Esau came in one day and was hungry. And he said, uh, can I have some of your food? And Jacob had food. And Jacob said, if you sell me your birthright, what's wrong with this family? I mean, what? There's some serious issues. If, my, if one of my sons ever made one of my other sons buy food from him, I'd slap him. And that without apology. What's wrong with you? That's your brother. I don't know what was wrong with Jacob. I don't know what was wrong. And then he pretended that he was Esau when it was time to get the blessing. And he got it from, from Isaac. And Esau came in later and said, I'm here for the blessing. And, and Isaac said, who are you? He said, I'm your son Esau. And, and Isaac said, I've already given your blessing. Your, your brother came and stole it, and he's blessed. Don't you have anything for me? I'm sorry. You're going to serve him all the days of your life. Ah! To this end now, Esau had happy thoughts. But those happy thoughts were only when he was thinking about killing Jacob. That's the truth. Mama said to Jacob, you have to go to your uncle Laban, my brother, because Esau is consoling himself with thoughts of killing you. So Jacob leaves, covered in darkness. I mean, clothes on his back, few provisions. Goes 120 miles north, a place called Haran, to visit his uncle Laban. He thinks for a little bit, but he winds up staying there 20 years. And he's, he's, he gets employed by Laban. And, and he's going to work, but he sees Laban's daughter. And Laban's daughter is Rachel, and she is gorgeous. I mean, drop-dead gorgeous. Jacob says, I got to have her. Laban says, what you going to give me? He says, oh, well, I ain't got no money. And I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll give you seven years of labor for her. So take, take. Jacob was a blue-collar worker, and the labor he was going to give was that of a shepherd. So let's say a blue-collar worker today, average salary between forty dollars and $60,000, and then multiply that by seven. Somewhere in the neighborhood of $300,000 for the rights to marry this woman. Now, put Joseph in this situation. Superimpose him. You, you don't get a signing bonus for coming out of trade school as a carpenter. You, you have to work for all your life to get that money. And so older men would marry younger women because it would take them a long time to get enough money to, to purchase the rights to marry the right kind of woman. 
And, and Joseph had worked for 25 years, maybe, for this moment. Saved up enough money for the right to marry the finest woman in all of Nazareth. Whoo! I won the lottery. This is fabulous. I'm set. And he's preparing. He's, and this is a non-refundable fee now. You can't get this back. Non-refundable. So he's getting everything together. He said, I won. I got her. I got her, boy. I tell you what, it'll be great. And then Mary knocks on the door and says, um, <clears throat> can, 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 we have, can we have a conversation? Can we talk? Sure, baby, sit down. What's on your mind? Um, yeah. Um, well, I... Uh, I am a little pregnant. <laughs> what? You What did you Do you Who What? pregnant do do you know what you have done do you know how long I've worked for this my entire life has been wrapped up for this moment have you lost your who is who's the daddy who is I'm gonna get my money who is the daddy who's the daddy God Mary, you're going to blame this on Joseph. I mean, you're going to blame this on God. You're going to blame this on God. Really? Really? What's wrong with you? You, I don't even, just get out of here. Get out of here. Get out. Get out. The law says I can stone you if I want in Deuteronomy 22 for what you've done. And I feel like I want to. But I'm restrained because I know by mercy that God has had all my life. I'm, I'm not, just get out of my life. You've done enough damage. I don't want to hear your voice anymore. Leave. Joseph, please get out. And he's trying to think, how did I wind up here? How did this happen? The Bible describes Joseph as a righteous man. Righteous. All of these circumstances between Joseph and and Mary, they're happening to good people. God is coming to wreck the life of good people. If he's going to wreck the life of good people. If you aren't living right, what's going to happen to you? What is in store for you? We don't know exactly how good they were. But I can guarantee you, Mary was not in the club the night before the angel came. Guarantee that. And if God says something about Joseph being righteous, it's not just a relative righteousness with, compared to the rest of humanity. This man was amazing. And if we did not have the kind of background necessary to confirm their righteousness, we could just say, God chose them. They had to be more right than most. They had to be extraordinary for God to choose these two people 
to, to birth and raise his boy. Extraordinary folks. And God was wrecking their lives. These folks came to church every Sunday. They tithed. They were given to the poor. They were memorizing the scriptures. They were going to small group. They were coming on Wednesday night. They went on missions trips. They cared about Yorkshire Elementary School. They were doing everything right. If you aren't doing things right, what might God do to you? He came and shattered Joseph's dream. And God comes to shatter our dreams, requires us to alter them, A-L-T-A-R, because he wants to give us something better. He's trying to wreck your life to put you in a mansion, destroy the shack that you enjoy to put you in the penthouse. That's what he's trying to do. He's not trying to make your life worse. He's trying to make it better. But we don't see that because all we see is what we built and what we've gone for and what we've gold for. Our achievements, our desires, we've had all. And, and now we're about to realize it. Go, Lord. Seems like he's endorsed my plan. And the beauty of this is that Joseph chose well. He chose the right woman. He just didn't know how it was going to work out. And you've chosen the right church. But it might get a little difficult for you. Somebody might come up and ask, how are you doing with your eyes? You know, that internet thing going the wrong place? You doing okay with that? And, and how are you doing with, with the giving part of your life? You, you're tithing, you're offering as you should. Have you been with a person of the opposite sex in a way that might be seen as compromising? You, you have some friends of the opposite sex that are just a little too close. And anybody, is that, are you reading your Bible the way you should? Are you praying the way you should? How are you caring for your... Wait a minute, I didn't come in. I ain't expecting all that out of a church. I just came to get blessed. <laughs> I came to hear the word, to worship. and get, Oh, it's going to get a little difficult. I know you didn't expect all that, but that's what we do. We do. It got quiet. <laughs> we do that because we care. Because there's, there's more about Christianity than just you being happy and content. It's about you being complete and fulfilled. And the things that I just mentioned are what we require all of our leaders to do regularly. Answer these questions. And then the last question that they got to answer after they ask all, answered all those is, have you lied about anything you just said? <laughs> because there's too much riding on the line, y'all. These questions are asked of me. If, if, I, if I blow it, all y'all going to be mad. You're going to see me in the mall and go the other way. Church is going to be messed up. People are going to be disillusioned. The same stuff that happens to everybody when a leader blows at every place else is going to happen here. And then the reputation that we had is going to sink. And then folks are going to be on the sidelines who are, Christ who are not Christians looking at us and see, told you it's going to happen. Ain't no real Christians on the planet. And because we can't afford that to happen for the kingdom, we ask ourselves difficult questions regularly. 
And we're trying to build a people who are holy and pure that can be a great example to the rest of the world. So you chose the right church, but it might get a little difficult for you. You may not know exactly what God has in plan. He chose the right one, did Joseph. He just didn't know how this was going to work. And God shattered his dream. And then what he did is he tried to salvage it. That's what we do next. When our dreams are shattered, we try to salvage stuff. Okay, now, okay, she got pregnant. Okay, why don't we just pretend like that th- th- we never happened. You and me, we married, we never happened, okay? You go that way, I'll go this way. I'm not going to execute judgment. Done with, but you get out of my life. And I'm going to start over. I don't know how much, what kind of, how much money, what kind of woman I, I, I but I'm going to find somebody else and we'll, we'll just, we're, we're going to start this process again and you can do, you can go be with your man and I'll go find another woman. Every time God begins to, to put his foot in the middle of our plans, to stop what we're doing, we do what we can to try to shift stuff around, to try to fix it. Because we have an idea about what we know God wants us to do, yet it's our idea, it's not his. And so salvaging, trying to replace the things in order, because insecurity is, is living in our world, and we don't like insecurity. We planned it this way, and now it's falling apart. But in the midst of his salvage operation, he finally gets quiet. And when God is coming to do stuff that's unexpected, and he's, he's changing all the realities of your reality, it's important for you to stop the noise in your head. All the voices that are telling you it's not going to work out. God doesn't care. This thing is going to really backfire on you. It's going to be horrible. Boy, wait till you get to the end. It's going to be more miserable there than where you are now. And fear begins to reign in your life. And you begin to make decisions based on that fear rather than faith. And you've got to quiet the voices in your head. You have to get still. And the metaphorical version of still for Joseph was fall asleep. He got still. And as he slept, the angel, an angel of the Lord came to him and said, First thing, Joseph, don't be afraid. Fear needs to be rooted out of our life. The only fear we need to have is the fear of Almighty God, and that is not a cowering before his presence. That's a healthy respect that we never do anything against his will, that we honor him every day. We respect him that much. But everything else, we need to not fear. We need to respond in faith. Because even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David said, I won't fear. Why? Because I know who is with me. His rod and his staff, they comfort me. They help me. They strengthen me. And the rod and the staff are metaphorical symbols for the authority of his word and his protection in our lives. And we need to hold on to the scriptures that we know to be true, especially when the world is crumbling because the word is the only thing that can never be shaken in our lives. Everything else will be. And he will shake it down to your core to let you know exactly that in which you trust. And if, if, if all that remains is the word of Almighty God, you hold on to it. I will not fear, David says, though it seems like everything in my life is dying. I know my God is with me. After the salvaging attempt, the angel said, don't fear. Stop what you're doing. You're making decisions out of, 
out of worry and, and, and anxiety and, and, and what, what, the, what the men at the AGC will say, the, the Association of Galilean Carpenters. You're concerned about what they're going to say to you and, and all your buddies out there. And you're concerned and, and stop all that thinking that way. Don't go that way. Don't be afraid. Stay still and listen to me, the angel says. Do not be afraid. Take Mary as your wife. For the child that is born in her will be the Son of God, and you shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. His dream was shattered. He tried to salvage. And then, you know, this is why these two people are astounding to me. When the angel said, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and this thing is going to be born of him, and and God's doing this. Again, she said, behold the bond slave of the Lord. Let it be done to me according to your word. It said when Joseph got up, when he got up, he said, Mary, all that stuff I said yesterday, don't worry about it. Let's go to the priest. You get Mary right now. I mean, Mary was like, are are you sure? What? Like, to send away, to never want to talk to you again. Help me. How did we wind up here? What did you, did did you like, did the angel come to you? How? Don't worry about all that. Don't worry about all that. Let's just go get married. I had a dream. I ain't going to explain it. I had a dream. I had a dream. Ain't going to be all right. Let's just go get, okay, okay, okay. She's 16, y'all. She's 16. (laughs) He seized a new dream. He didn't take six months to pray. He didn't go find 15 counselors and get a a pool of, 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 input from one person or another it is said I know what God said now there's nothing wrong with finding as much information and input wise counsel as you possibly can but there are circumstances like this when everybody who has smarts spiritually is going to say you're nuts you're crazy you're out of your mind he just did it seized a new dream and said, God, if you want to wreck my life, wreck my life. As long as you are honored. As long as I can give you glory. As long as I can hear the words, I'm well pleased with you. I don't need to hear from anybody else if I can hear them from you. Everybody else will be chattering. My reputation is going to be destroyed. I got that. They're going to think we slept together. All my buddies are going to think we slept together. I got it, but I can't do nothing about them. I can't help how they think. I know what you called me to do, and I am willing to endure the ridicule of humanity to do your will. Are you willing to have God wreck your reputation in order to make him happy, to do something? And remember, the thing that the angel told him was basically, I need your help. I need your help. Now, reality is God, God doesn't need our help in the ultimate sense of need. He's God Almighty. He can do what he wants better than if we were trying to help him. He can do what he wants. 
He made the world in six days and didn't ask you or me. So he, he, can, he can always do whatever he wants much better. But he likes to use us. It's kind of like when my daughter was four. Mama bought a shelf that I needed to put together in the bathroom over the commode. And that shelf where you put nice little things that women like to put. And, and, and the problem was this thing was, was uh, it wasn't assembled. And I'm mechanically challenged. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not good at putting stuff together. Every time I do, there are parts left over, and that's generally not good. I mean, I'm done, and there are screws left on the ground, and I'm thinking, I must have missed something. So I'm putting this thing together, and I, I'm not happy about it. I'm not happy. I love my wife, but I'm not happy. My daughter comes in, who's four, Brooke. And she says, um, and she loved to be with Daddy when Daddy was doing something. Daddy, can, can, can I help you? Now, my pragmatic, practical self said, no, you're four. You're four. But my daddy side said, absolutely, baby. Come on, help daddy. So I taught her how to, how to, how to tighten a screw clockwise and, and loosen it counterclockwise. And I taught her what a bolt was and a nut. And, oh, boy, it took me twice as long. <laughs> but I was twice as happy. Anytime God asks you to do stuff, it's not because he really needs help. It's just because he likes to do it with you. And although it usually takes him at least twice as long, he's twice as happy. You know that statement that the father gave when Jesus was at the River Jordan and, and heavens opened up, he was being baptized by John the Baptist and this sound came out of heaven. Some people heard thunder, but those who were sensitive heard the Father say, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. We hear that, and because we are so insecure about our own significance, we think it's all about us. That's not about us. When a dad has, has been with his son or daughter for 15 years, and they've been playing basketball, and they made the varsity, and now they made it all the way to the state championship, they're down by two with 10 seconds left. They got the ball. Their son or daughter drives up the court, stops at the three-point line. When he could drive and, and, and make an easier shot, has ice water in his veins and drains a three with .4 seconds left on the clock. And there's not enough time for the other team to go down the other end and make a shot. They win the state championship. Daddy's in the audience. You know what daddy does? That's my boy. That's my, yeah, that's my girl right there. That's <laughs> go girl, go. It's more about daddy than it is the daughter. It's more about the pride that the parent feels over their son and daughter's accomplishment than it is about somehow commending their son or daughter. Their son or daughter already knows they did good. But what daddy feels on the inside you can't duplicate that in any other environment. And the reason God wants you to help him is so he can feel that. So you can give him an opportunity to say, see what she did right there? Mm-hmm. That's my girl. That's my girl. You want to have multiple opportunities in your life for daddy to sit in the stands and say that about you. 
You don't need the stroking anymore. You're fine. You know you're doing right. You know that God is blessing your life and you're on the right track. But you want the father to feel the pride that comes from watching their son or daughter do amazing. Joseph, <laughs> I want you to help me because I want to feel this about you. He says, yes, and he sees the new dream. And it was going to be difficult, really, really, really hard. Not only was he going to have to endure the ridicule of all of his friends and everybody talking behind his back and whispering for the rest of his days, but the practice of raising this child. I mean, the reason God said you shall name him Jesus was more than just giving him a name. It was saying, I need you to help define what his calling is, what his purpose is. I need you to let him know as he's growing up what he is called to do. He needs you in his life so that he is focused in the right thing. He's called to save his people from their sins. I need you there for that. Call him Jesus and help him understand what that means. I need you, Joseph, for that. And if, if this wasn't inconvenient enough, not only has to, has, does he have to endure the ridicule of everybody around him. Are you still with me? But now Caesar has called for a census. And every person has to go to the town of their registered birth, which is where their family is kind of, how, how do you say it? It's their homestead. And it, it's where they would have a family reunion. But it was the, the, the legitimate registry of where that family was. They'd have to go there in order to be counted for the census. He lives in Nazareth, which is about 90 miles north. Mary's pregnant. She's eight months pregnant. He has to travel all the way down with her. And then she, he realizes this. When we get there, she's going to give birth in Bethlehem. Ladies, do you understand why in the world after she gave birth that he didn't say time to go back to Nazareth? Realizing she had just given birth and now she's going to have to ride on a donkey for the next four weeks? can't do that so now Joseph is realizing this child is costing me my job I built up a clientele here in Nazareth which is amazing I'm one of the finest carpenters in the area people look to me for advice on how to build stuff which trees to select how to plane how to cut wood I don't know anybody in Bethlehem and I'm sure they've already they're already stocked with great carpenters. What? He sets up shop in Bethlehem, and now he's got to compete with all those folk without, without having a reputation to do so. All the other carpenters. And this is why he had a house in Nazareth, we believe. And now he's living in a one-bedroom apartment for two years. We know they didn't have a whole lot of resources, because it says when they offered, when, when Jesus was brought in for a dedicatory moment, they offered two turtle doves. Which you had, the, you had the option of offering lamb or turtle doves. And if you didn't have enough money for a lamb, then you could offer the turtle dove. Two turtle doves each were about 15 cents. So if you bought two, you can get them for a quarter. That's all they had. And not because they were poor, poor, meaning he had no resources. It's because he paid all that money to Mary's daddy. And he was just starting out again. And there he is in Bethlehem trying to make it go. And I imagine every day he's thinking, this is the best idea for me. I'm doing what I can, God, to try to make. But this is your boy. I'm, 
I got him in a one bedroom. He's king of the world. I, how in the world are you going to be? How? I can't be doing a good job. I want out. But I can't get out. Something isn't right here. Until the Magi show up. Which is the teaser for Tuesday night. <laughs> Let's pray. Father in heaven, we present to you our lives.